And we're live. Hello, and welcome to Debut Spotlight. I'm Rachel Barenbaum, author of the brand new novel, Atomic Anna. And I am super, super excited to have Wahini Vara here today to talk about her masterpiece, The Immortal King Rao. This book was so good. I read it a few months ago, and I think I contacted Wahini just out of the blue and was like, I need you to come on my show, please, because I was so excited when I read this book. So I'm thrilled to have you here today. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And I'm very excited about your book, too, which I've seen all over the place, by the way. Oh, well, thank you. So for people, that was amazing. So for people who don't know Wahini, I'm just going to read a quick bio, and then we're going to hear all about her amazing book. Um, so Wahini Vara has worked as a Wall Street Journal technology reporter and as the business editor for The New Yorker. I love that, by the way. Her fiction has been honored by the O. Henry Prize and the Rona Jaffe Foundation. From a Dalit background, she lives in Fort Collins, Colorado. All right. Whew. So business, finance. I love it. I don't know if you know this. I have an MBA. I used to work in a hedge fund. Oh, I didn't hedge know fund. that. Yes. So I love writers who span both. Yeah. But but let's get to your amazing book here, The Immortal King Rao. So um, it's a very complicated book. I just want to warn our listeners. So I wanted to start off by asking you, could you give us like sort of a, a simple explanation of what it's about, right? Like a family saga type level. Yes. <laughs> and then we'll um, get into then we'll get into a deeper tell me what it's about. So on a yes, simple absolutely. level. So um, yeah, it's got a lot. Um, there are three different storylines, and I won't tell you about them all in detail, but um, it starts in this coconut grove in South India in the 1950s and is the story of a boy named King Rao who's born there. King Rao moves to the U.S. in the 1970s. Sorry. Um, so we start off with the family saga here when we're yes. starting, right? And we yeah. see the very beginning of the family and he's born in the 70s and then take it away. He's born in the 50s and then he moves 50s, to the U.S. Sorry. in the 70s um, and starts a tech company. That tech company becomes huge, um, and that's the second storyline. And then the third storyline is um, that of his daughter, who's actually narrating all these storylines. And that's set in this dystopian future where the company that King Rao started uh, and the, has sort of turned into the leader of this global corporate-run world government. And that's the world in which she's living, and she's trying to make her way through this world. Yeah. So on a very simple level, it's sort of a father-daughter story, right? It's this family spanning generations, moving right to America and sort of becoming, right, finding their way. Yes. But can, so can you dig in a little more and give me sort of the deeper, right, heavier, what is it about what's going on? Yeah. So, um, you know, what I was trying to do with the book is talk, you know, it feels like different stories that have nothing to do with each other, but it's like really the story of global capitalism and what that's done to like human relationships and family over the course of like the past 75 years and like what this might look like over the next 25 or 50 years. And so, um, you know, like it's sort of a book about ideas, but it's set in like pretty domestic spheres, I would say. Right. So, I mean, we get into terms like, right, shareholders. We have the, um, I, I don't want to get any of these names wrong here. So I'm like looking up all of my, looking at my notes here. Right. But I don't know if you could talk about some of the terms that you have in there, right? Because they're the blank lands, right? We have, um, there's no money, right? Instead, yeah. it's your, you know, pop, you know, if so you could talk this, about, right, some of these terms. Yeah. So in this new, um, this in this new world order that's dominated by um, King Rao and this company called Coconut, which he founded, um, the system of government is called shareholder government. So it's this sort of like global government where there aren't sort of national governments anymore. It's just this global sort of 
business run, you know, corporate system. So within that, instead of being like a citizen of a nation, you're a shareholder in this global world government. Instead of being paid in like dollars or, you know, euros or or whatever, you're paid in what's known as social capital, which is a, a, a kind of currency, but then it's also embedded with like, it's it's a kind of currency that also embeds within it like what we know, what we think about as sort of like online social capital, like how many friends you have, how many likes you get. Um, let's see what else. Um, uh, there are these th these sort of dissident rebels called the exes who have sort of you know self excised themselves from themselves from the system of government, and so they're called the exes, and they live on these offshore islands that the government has allowed them to live on, called the blank lands. Um, so I think. That covers, I think, a number of the of the terminologies that are used in the book. Yeah, and I love it because what you do is you seriously build a world, right? That I am in, and and when I'm reading, when I was reading this book, I was just so into all right these big ideas because you can see how we can get there from where we are now. Yeah. Um, right, and it's a terrifying sort of view into what the world could be. Um, but so I wanted to start at the very very beginning because I was so struck by where you ended versus where you started. And I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but um, when we start, um, it's basically we're with Radha and uh, sort of how she gets married, right? And she's uh, sort of forced into this marriage. But when we start off, she has these big dreams and she wants to right go to the big city. She wants to have her own independent life, but then she's forced into a marriage um, and essentially raped and forced into having this child that she doesn't want to have. Yeah. Again, very... Um, eerily, right, prescient, eerily, right, women being forced to have children that they don't want to have in situations they don't want to have. Yeah. Um, could you talk about why you chose that as the beginning? Huh, gosh, I don't know that I have a very well-reasoned explanation. I wanted to start because the sort of like life of King Rao is sort of has this kind of epic scope. I wanted almost in the sort of like traditionalist way, like um, in a sort of, I don't know, like 18th, 19th century novel way, I was like, oh, I got to start at the beginning. Like this book has to start with King Rao's beginnings. Um, you know, a book I was thinking about actually, now that I think about it, was The Tin Drum by Gunter Grass, um, where it's a story of this very strange, precocious human that, but it starts with like his parents and his grandparents to sort of like ground who this person is in like his familial and cultural history. It also felt like now, now you've got me going like the book, um, the part of the book is set in India and the book is sort of concerned, I think, with like the relationship between kind of individualistic ways of thinking and communalistic ways of thinking. Right. Um, that um, that traditionally are thought of as like Western versus Eastern. And so the book King Rao becomes, you know, the leader of this like fairly individualistic system of government. That, but the world in which he's born is a very sort of family oriented communal system. And so I wanted to sort of like show the kind of community and family system he comes from as a way of sort of explaining who this who this person's going to be. But there was also I read into it there was sort of a quiet violence, right? Because oh, yeah. she's you know punching her stomach to get rid mm -hmm, right of the mm -hmm. child. But then also we have Athena who's in the prison named after her mother, right? And yeah. again I felt like that's kind of a womb metaphor, yes. right? Yes. Um and she's you know convicted of this crime that she swears she didn't um, commit. And, and so there's sort of this quiet violence against women in that, right. Yeah. And she's injected with the DNA. Um, right. Right. And, and yet 
I felt like there's a feminist side to all of this too, right? These are strong yeah. women. Can you talk right. about that juxtaposition? Totally. No, I'm glad you brought that up too. No, that's absolutely an element here. Like I think like in these narratives we have of great men, like they seem to sort of emerge out of a vacuum, right? Like they just like, they, they're self-made, especially with businessmen, I think. Like we, we have these narratives about them where they kind of came out of nowhere. And women in particular are excised from those narratives, right? Like mothers, wives. Um, and so it was important to me to show the role of a woman, right? In bringing this person in, into the world. Um, I also, you know, I also wanted their, like in this book in which sort of like violence plays a role, both like on, on, on very human to human levels, but also like institutional violence and global violence and violence committed by, by corporations and by governments, like, like it felt interesting to sort of begin the book um, with a sort of act of violence that brings this character into the world, like on a, on a sort of symbolic level, I guess. But Athena was a feminist. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, can you, so can you talk about that? Cause she was a strong woman. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, I think in their way, all of the women in this book are trying to exert agency and power within certain constraints. Right. So like, um, you know, King Rao's birth mother, Radha, wanted to go move to the, you know, a bigger town and become a doctor. His wife, he ends up, uh, his wife and business partner, Margie, um, sort of chooses to start a business with him and sort of like is a driving force between the the founding of this of this company, Coconut, in a kind of like subtle, in a subtle, not not overt way, because to be a woman in the 70s, you can't go st and start a company by yourself, right? Like she needed to align herself with this guy. And then Athena, the narrator of the book, wants to do something in the world. Like she wants to be a powerful person with agency in the world and is trying to figure out how to do that. Right. I love that. Okay. So um, if you wouldn't mind, would you indulge me and read like the first paragraph of the book, just so we yes. can get a sense of your voice? Because it's so beautiful. And I, this is like my my favorite thing to ask authors to do. Absolutely. Okay. So Yay. here again is the book, The Immortal King Rao. King Rao left this world as the most influential person ever to have lived. He entered it possessing not even a name. In the beginning, his mother-to-be stood at the little general store in the center of her village, eyeing the tins of soap piled neatly on the countertop facing the road. It was 1951. Radha had seen this brand before on excursions to Rajamundri with her father and sister, but finding a stack of soap tins at their store, three high and two wide, pairs, 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 was something else altogether. Oh. Thank you. Oh my God. I love it. Is there something so special about hearing an author read their own book, right? And get their voice. So one of the big questions that I was struggling with um, as I was reading your book is, is the, the question of, is progress good? Mm -hmm. Like your characters are struggling with it. You as the author are struggling with it. And I would love to hear you talk about that. Is progress good? Yeah. So I guess it's like, there are like these two terms, words in that sentence and that question you use that like have to be deconstructed, right? Progress and good. So like, what is progress? What is good? I think we humans have a compulsion to sort of like wonder why we're here on this earth and then like try to do something about that question, right? Like we want to like do something while we're here, which is a very human impulse, I think. Like, and it's sort of like been true for generations. Um, but then where we get into trouble is like trying to define what 
that something is that we should do to make the world a better place. And like, we have these sort of like growth oriented, kind of, you know, what's become sort of capitalistic ways of thinking, but I think they've been embedded in us from the beginning. We're like, it's about like more and more and more, like more land, more money, more growth, right? Like let's take what we have and make more of it somehow. Um, whereas other species sort of think more sustainably, right? It's like, just like, how can I keep myself fed, right? How can we sort of survive in this world? Um, and so all the characters in this novel, I think, are like trying to answer that question of like what they're put here to do. Um, and I think in almost every case, like the answer to that question they come up with is problematic. Like there are things that are exciting about it, I think. Um, and on the flip side, things that are problematic. I didn't want anything to be like pure evil or pure good, right? Like I wanted every one of those paths that the characters take to like show both sides. Right, because is there such a thing as pure evil or pure good? Right, right. right. I mean, there are shades of everything. Um, but in any case, um, I love this question of is progress good? Do you know, is all of the science, is all of this, right, technology that we're building, is that progress? Yeah. And is that good, right? Is that making the world a better place, like you were saying? So I love that. And tied to that are questions of hierarchy and class, mm -hmm. which is also a big struggle, right? People not only wanting to build more objects or have things, but to move up in the world and how mm -hmm. they're seen. So how did you think about that as you were writing the book? Yeah, so um, there are these sort of competing, I think, worldviews in the book. And one is um, one is uh, personified by King Rao, right, in this government that he creates in which the, 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 the sort of job of a shareholder is to produce more, to create more social capital for oneself. Um, and then the, the, the competing worldview is that of the exes who say, you know what, like, we're going to pull ourselves out of this system. We don't believe in all that. Like, we're just going to try to find a more sustainable way of living. Um, and, but then because they exist within this world created by shareholder government, like that puts some constraints on them because they've decided not to like use social, the sort of corporate run social media system, for example, so that they can't like spread their meat, spread their message um, using technology because they've decided not to do that. And so, um, yeah, I mean, like living sustainably has its limits too in this in this world and in our world in which we exist today too, I think. So I'm dying to know, what would you be? Would you be an ex? Would you be a shareholder? Like, where would you be? God, yeah, I don't know. That's it. Nobody's asked me that question. Really? Because yeah, I know that's, you, your know. questions are so good. These are such good questions, by the way. Um, I don't know. I mean, I really admired the exes. Um, even, you know, they were my creations, but like they felt sort of like, like they had agency of their own and I admired them. And then I also thought to myself like, oof, like there's no way they're going to make it, you know, like, and the book is sort of nuanced and not, and that's not a spoiler to say that. Um, uh, the, I think the booklet tries to be nuanced in how it, how it treats the exes, um, you know, to like shareholders, shareholders that like have a certain amount of privilege and wealth, like could, can live pretty good lives, right? So that's appealing as well. Um, I think it's meant to sort of mirror the world in which we actually live, right? Where we like to think like, oh yes, I am someone who lives sustainably. But then like, you know, your kid is starting school the next day and you forgot to order pencils. And so like you order them on Amazon because that's the fastest way to get them to your house, right? Like, um, that's an excellent example. Yeah. Oh my God, yes. I know there's something virtuous about like, I'm like, I wanna be an ex, I wanna be an ex, but could I actually be an ex? Right. 
Right. right? What if you could be a top shareholder? Which is right. exactly the question we have now. Yes. Right. There's no real clear answer. It's just like, is progress good? Yeah. So I love that you had all of these questions in here. Okay. Hothouse Earth, climate collapse, extinguishing human civilization. And like, no one wants to talk about it. <laughs> it's like brushed right under the rug as it is in real life, not mm -hmm. just in your book. So how did you decide to layer that in and mirror that in the book? It felt once I knew that the book would be set partly in some relatively near future, right? Like a couple of decades from now. I, I had to imagine what that world would be like. And so it wasn't that like I necessarily was like, I, this book must contend with climate change. It was more like once I'm writing about this world, the world in which we live now, right? And also this world that we're headed headed toward in 20 or 30 years, like I couldn't not write about it. And it wasn't, you know, climate change actually wasn't prominent, I don't think, in like some of the early drafts of the book. But then I was like, well, here we are. Like I'm writing about this world the climate is going to change. Like if we're on this path and if, you know, in this world in which like we continue to have like corporate dominated um, government systems, which we already do, right? Like it's just like a sort of stealthier, stealthier form of domination. Like, of course, climate change is going to worsen, right? Of course, um, we're going to find ourselves in a world a sort of like in which sort of like tech utopian salute tech technological utopianism thrives and like tech solutions to climate change are like what get the most attention. Um, so yeah, I mean, it felt it's at a certain point it was inevitable that I had to write about it. Yeah. I loved how you put it in there, but also I think, you know, um, it's something we don't talk about enough. And also, and then, but again, with this whole shareholder versus exes, it's like, yes, I'm going to fight for climate change, but then I'm going to use, you know, six masks this week and I'm going to take five COVID tests, right? And generate all this trash that you're then yeah. throwing out and all this plastic. And yet, right, there's this sort of hypocrisy there that um, that I think you have in the book as well. Yeah. 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 And I want, you know, like, I think there's an easy impulse to like, just, blame the wealthiest among us and the most powerful among us. But like we humans created the, these systems, right? And like, we we are complicit in them. You know, every time like we buy something on Amazon, every time we take an Uber, you know, um, we, you know, every time like when we, some of us like have 401ks, right? We're like, or we, we have pensions, we're teachers. And you know, the, the, the our, our union is, is helping us invest in companies. And like, maybe we invest in these companies that we sort of like denounce on Twitter and we don't even know it. Right. Um, yeah. So I think like a lot of us are like very much, we're, we're part owners of some of these companies. Um, yeah. Yeah. I love that. Okay. So switching gears just a touch. I read that um, you were inspired by or watching Battlestar Galactica. Yes. Writing this. I loved that series. The review. So, so good. Talk to me about Battlestar Galactica. And yes. How inspired okay. you. Yeah. So I was in grad, I started this book a long time ago in 20, 2009. And I was in but grad I just want to say that again. You started this book in 2009 because so many people think like, oh, she just woke up and wrote a book. <laughs> yeah. I think that's true of a lot of us too, right? Like people work on, especially first books, like yeah. people work on books for a long time. So started in 2009. Um, my dad gave me the initial idea for the book. My dad grew up on a coconut grove in the South of India. He is Dalit. Um, and um, there was like some drama on his family coconut grove. And he said, why don't you write about, you know, the place where I grew up? 
And um, I also knew I wanted to write about the I love that. Hold on. You just keep brushing by these things. Yes. That's amazing. So he's like, why don't you do that? And you just in your head, and I was you like, thought, okay, okay. Oh, I love um, that. Because coconut is a huge part, the grove, the name, totally. like everything. Yeah, it's a big, to the it's a big theme. Um, yeah. Uh, so, but then I, you know, I I visited my family coconut grove. Like it's still there. My family still spends time there. I have family mem members who still live there. Um, but I never lived there, you know, like I didn't grow up Dalit in the 1950s as a boy and experience, you know, discrimination and oppression. Um, and so it felt very distant from my own experience. And it felt like it would be hard to try to tell this story, like in the first person, for example, or a close third person, like trying to just like embody as an author, a character like King Rao. And so we were watching Battlestar Galactica, which you probably remember has these sort of like Android-like characters that can... Um, that can see the con experience, the consciousness of other people, of humans. And so I was like, oh, if I just had something like that as my as a narrative device, then I could tell the story of King Rao, but I wouldn't have to be like trying to be King Rao as the author. I could have this narrative voice that's something other than King Rao. So for years and years, I just had this other voice telling the story, which was the result of te some technology that like allowed for the accessing of his consciousness. And I didn't know who the voice was. And then after many years, I realized like, oh, I think this is his daughter. And I think this technology is sort of embedded in her brain that allows her to access the, the mind of her father and tell his Wow. Story. So you wrote for years with that voice yeah. and not knowing where it was from. Yes. For like maybe, maybe six or seven, something like that, at least. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> well, in Battlestar Galactica too, you're you're never sure who's a Cylon, who's not, right? You're like, which yeah. which are you? Right. Are you human? Are you not? Should I blow you up? Should I kiss That's you? That's right. That's right. <laughs> like, what are yeah, you? and I experiment. Right. Like I experimented. There were like there were versions of Athena that were much more like this is a this is Athena is a technology, right? Like she's some kind of android that's been created. In the version uh -huh. I ended up with, like she's she's human. She just like has access to this sort of biomedical technology. Um, I, you know, I come from a, like a literary fiction background. Um, I don't come from a sci-fi background. And so it, it was really hard for me. Like I had to learn a lot about how to write those aspects of the book. And I honestly, like, I feel like I didn't think I had the skills to like have the narrator, narrator actually be some kind of full on Android, you know? Are people calling your book sci-fi? People are. Um, I, it's funny, like, as I was writing it, I didn't think about it as anything in particular. I mean, you can probably relate as a writer, right? Like, you don't yeah. say to yourself, like, and this will be a thriller. It'll be in the thriller <laughs> aisle. Um, right. But, um, but yeah, now that it's out, like, I guess for marketing reasons, like your publisher and like booksellers need to figure out what to call it. And the word, yeah, the word sci-fi and this words, words like dystopian have definitely been used, which I think are a little misleading because I, uh, friends of mine, who have read the book have said to me or just readers who aren't friends of mine have said like oh i wasn't sure if i'd like this because i don't normally read sci-fi but like this yeah. isn't this isn't i don't think of this as a sci-fi book and i don't either like i think there's sci-fi elements um but i don't think it's like a straight science fictional book because i don't know that i could write a straight science fictional book i just don't have those skills yeah yeah definitely for those of you listening this is not sci-fi do yeah. not be scared off if that's the shelf you find it on um, okay, so I wanted to switch gears just a little bit and ask you about your background, um, tech reporter for the Wall Street Journal and business editor for the New Yorker, yeah. writing this right amazing piece of literature. So how do those three all go together? Yeah, so I graduated from college in 2004. And my first job out of college was as a tech reporter at the Wall Street Journal. 
And one of my first beats was writing about Facebook because we had nobody covering Facebook and it was like suddenly starting to grow and there was no one on that beat. Like we just, people didn't see it coming. And so I was like the, the 22 or 23 year old in the office and was like, well, I can write about this company. Um, so I started writing about Facebook and like, you know, spending a little bit of time with Mark Zuckerberg and the people around him and, um, found him really fascinating and also found like Larry Ellison and Bill Gates, um, who I, I was also writing about software. So I was writing about people like that. I also found them. Amazing. Really that is amazing. Yeah. Um, that had to inform really, some of King Rao. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like the thing that I think was like just details about the companies and the, these men obviously inform King Rao, but also like we think of these people as being fairly, very powerful, like even all powerful, right? Like when we think of Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or, or these people. And I recognized in a way that I previously had it when I started to write about these companies, the ways in which like they face their own pressures, especially from shareholders, right? Like they don't necessarily, they usually don't own um, more than 50% of their company, right? So like they are subject to the demands and whims and desires of the people who invest in them, whether they're like private investors or public investors. Um, so, you know, for any, in any fiction, like characters do need to face pressures. They can't be all that powerful or they're boring. Right. And so like that really informed how I thought of how King should develop as well. I love that. And the business side. Yeah. I mean, you know, like I, having written about companies, I was able to imagine like what a, what a fictional company that became very powerful might look like. Right. Um, and I did, you know, I, I'm still, I'm still a reporter. Um, so like in 2018, I think it was, for example, I got an assignment from four. I wanted to learn more about AI because I knew AI algorithms would play a role in the book. So I got an assignment from fortune magazine to profile this Canadian AI company, partly because I found the company fascinating and partly because I wanted to just like have a reason and excuse to go and interview people about how AI works and like sit next to AI programmers and like watch how they do their work and see what that looks like on the screen, you know, um, for the purposes of the novel. So like that work has always like my journalism work and editing work has definitely said my work as a fiction. I love that. It's like indirect research that then went straight into the book. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you are a master at building this world, right? You have completely different names, right? All places, everything, right? It, it, a language. In fact, you need like a, you could write a dictionary or something, right? For all the terms in here. Um, can you uh, tell me how did you keep track of everything? Were you using spreadsheets? Like how did you build this? No, it was all, you know, when you spend this long, I don't know, how long did you work on your novel? This novel, Rachel, that just came out? Um, I wrote Atomic Anna in 2018. Oh, so, wow. Okay. So, um, but I edited until 21, right? Okay. So I hear you. So this is yeah. like, I mean, maybe it's similar actually, or like a different version of the same thing. But like, I think when you work on a book for 13 years, like it just like lives so much in you. Like I just like was so familiar with it that like, it was just all in my brain. So I didn't have any, um, particular, like, that's amazing. So you don't have a cheat sheet where you were no. like, oh yeah, I called these guys the exes and they live. No, I didn't. Like it just felt so wow. lived in for me because I worked on it for so long, you know? 
That's amazing. I think that comes off in the book, actually, because mm. it seems so natural, right? And you, I mean, it is clear to me that you know this world, like yeah. that it is a Thank living, you. a real world. So, wow. So do you have advice for people who are writing and making their own world? Like how do you, can you do that in less than 10 years? <laughs> I, I have really good advice that came from my friend, the writer, Anna North. Um, I don't know if okay. she's been on the show ever. I don't she's think not, she but she's that. an amazing writer. She's amazing. I, yeah. Yes, um, I totally admire her work. And she writes um, a number of her books like worlds or worlds that aren't like ours. And she was one of my early readers for the book. And I remember her pointing out that certain aspects of the dystopian sort of future setting were not fully realized. Like this was a period when like I didn't have like these names for things figured out. I didn't know exactly where things were set. And I called her and was like, that's so daunting. Like, I don't know what the world looks like. Like, it's a world that doesn't exist. How can I, how can I imagine it? This sounds really hard. And she said, well, just like go to those parts of the book and like live in them for a while, you know, like go for a walk and like imagine what it would be like to like be walking in that world. And I found that advice like very soothing as a writer. I was like, this is very prescriptive, direct advice. This is a thing I can do. And so I started, oh, and she said like, go look at Google maps and like figure out like where precisely you're talking about. Like the world is still going to have the same map, right. In this dystopian future world. So like, where exactly are we? Um, you know, Athena grows up on this Island in Puget sound um, off the coast of Seattle called Blake Island. And for years and years, like it was just an Island. Like it didn't have a name. I didn't know where it was. And it was from Anna's advice that I went and looked on Google maps, identified the Island. It was an Island I knew cause I grew up in the Seattle area. Like I could see it from my mom's house. Um, and so that like that was very helpful that so that's the advice I would pass that's amazing. Like, just go to those places in your book and inhabit them and like think about what it would be like and thank you for sharing that you were lost too because yes. you know I think as writers we get lost all the time right and we're not sure how to go forward so yeah, thank you absolutely. for sharing that okay so in 60 seconds or less what advice do you have for new writers who are just starting out what should they be doing what should they be thinking this is very boring advice. I bet writers have given it before on this show, but I would say like, just, you know, as often as possible within the constraints of like your work obligations, your family obligations, like just sit down and write. Don't just do it when like the, you know, spirit, you know, um, fun time hold on, you, we lost you. Oh, I, wait, like, wait. I lost you. Wahini? Oh, Wahini? Wahini? I'm here. Now I can hear you. You froze for a second. Okay, oh, I'm so sorry. start again. So you were, I lost you and you said, don't just sit down when the spirit, and then you got cut when off. The, so. Yeah, when the spirit grabs you, like don't wait for inspiration. Um, I'm not necessarily saying do it every day. I know that that's not possible or feasible, especially if you're just starting out and have other things you need to do to make a living. But, um, but like as often as you can, make it a priority. Just do it. I love that. Wahini, this was so much fun. Your book is absolutely incredible, The Immortal King Rao. Everyone go out, buy a copy, read it today, and may you sell many, many copies. Thank oh, you for thank joining you me. Thank you so much. These were such great questions. This is really fun show. Thank you, Rachel.